Welcome to The Owl Hoot, a podcast for the environmentally curious, with me, Caroline Norbury. On each episode, I chat with a guest who contributes in some way to protecting the planet on matters of climate change, sustainability, biodiversity and pollution. Here is a place where you can gain new knowledge and be inspired. Enjoy listening. With me today is Richard Lilly, also known as RJ. He is the co-founder and CEO of Project Seagrass, an organisation aiming to communicate the importance of seagrass alongside monitoring and conserving it. His numerous academic qualifications include a degree in natural sciences from Durham University, a science teaching qualification, a tropical marine ecology short course whilst at Stockholm University, two master's degrees and a PhD in sustainable supply chain management from Cardiff University. RJ has also taught science in schools and worked as a paddy dive master in Thailand. In this conversation, I am keen to discover the environmental value of seagrass ecosystems. So welcome, RJ, to the podcast. Caroline, thank you for having me. That is quite a, what's the word I'm looking for? It's some introduction. Um, yes. Yeah, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just a, a guy who's passionate about seagrass and the sea, but yeah, thank well, you very I much. Think, I think you're more than that, RJ. <laughs> um, and I tried not to make it for those people of a certain age, like the generation game when I was talking about your qualifications, because they are quite impressive. So tell me a bit about your background. How did you come to be doing uh, those different types of research and courses and then to become interested in seagrass? You know, so I, I go from Birmingham, so I'm, I'm a, a boy from central England, and I, I guess my connection to the sea was more important to start with than, than, than seagrass. And, you know, yeah, my first my first degree was a natural science degree at, at Durham University. And so I was actually on a course there where I, I was doing a lot of work with anthropology and looking at primates and wanting to know more about monkeys and gorillas and, and apes. And it was actually only after... I, I graduated, I wanted to go and get some work experience um, and looking looking to get work experience at the primates would involve working overseas. And so um, I was looking at, you know, opportunities abroad and could I could I go and work in the Amazon or various places? Um, but my partner at the time, she wasn't particularly keen on moving to the Amazon rainforest, understandably, perhaps. And so we settled on a, me doing some work experience in, in a marine environment, doing environmental survey work and, and that was actually in Mexico and I just fell in love with the sea so you know fell in love with with diving um with that whole marine marine space um but I returned to the UK in um after a year and my my, my then partner was, was was doing an, uh, an accountancy training course like a three-year program uh, in Birmingham and I thought well, what can I do if I wanted to, at this point, I really had the urge to be involved with um, working in, in the marine space. And But what can you do in Birmingham? Um, but I've always loved education, communication, teaching, sharing my passion with people. Um, so I trained to be a teacher. And so you know, we eventually split up because we were going down different paths. But um, I, I, I spent three years in, in Birmingham teaching, really enjoyed that, but knew that I wanted to, um, to get back into or like into the marine environment and, and marine conservation and that's when I went to become a, a paddy uh, diving diving dive master and then instructor 
and that was again a brilliant job you know again it's that coaching teaching sharing your passion with with people uh, on a daily basis but the thing that struck me um, and this was working out in thailand was i was working in the national marine park and yet the marine park was being degraded before my eyes you know there was illegal fishing practices there was coral bleaching and i i just felt that it was really hard although i was, I was enjoying taking people out and sharing the beauty it's very difficult turning up to a dive site and then having to remove fishing gear or you know, just to see it actually visibly degrade even over the, the period of months. And so I wanted to know more about it. And uh, that's probably where the start of that list of academic qualifications really came from, is wanting to go back in and understand more about the, the challenges and, and really educate myself in that, in that area so that I, had a, I could be better informed about how I could maybe try and make a difference in that, in that space. And so, yeah, initially returned to Stockholm, where I was, I was actually planning to do my uh, my master's. But whilst I was there, my mum had a health scare and I didn't want to be in Sweden whilst my mum was in the UK. She was fine, fortunately, but at the time I didn't know that. So made a very quick change of university to come back to Swansea, which was actually quite serendipitous because it was at Swansea where I met Richard Unsworth, who is a, a associate professor at Swansea University still and a co-founder of Project Seagrass. Um, and also met Ben, who's the other founder of Project Seagrass. Uh, we were uh, teaching together at the dive club. Uh, and that's where Project Seagrass was born. And so my first master's was a, a sort of natural science master's with him. And then for the PhD, which was, was interdisciplinary, I needed to do further training in social science research methods. And so that was at Cardiff. Um, but over that time period in South Wales, it allowed me to upskill both in the natural sciences and the social sciences, and also to be working alongside other people who are passionate in this space and really sort of found Project Seagrass and, and get it off the ground. So, yeah, that's a sort of brief history of how I've got to where we are now. Yeah, I, I, mean, I like the, the fact that you have these threads of commonality through what's, you know, fairly different types of things you've been doing, but that whole communicating, curiosity, those are themes, aren't they? I was wondering when you were actually out doing your diving had you come across seagrass at that point? Was it already on your radar? Not at all. And this is the thing that struck me when I, I turned up at Swansea. So I, I was first introduced to seagrass, seagrasses as, a, as an ecosystem at um, Stockholm University. So it was a, it was a, it was a short course a unit um, and, and it covered, uh, I can remember it now, it, it covered five broad habitat types. So you looked at open ocean systems, you looked at coral reefs, you looked at seagrass meadows, you looked at um, mangroves and then you looked at land systems and, and the interplay between those five uh, and so that's the first time I'd really delved into seagrass meadows and then leaving Stockholm with that qualification and, and um, coming to Swansea I was actually because I had that, that made that late switch to Swansea I was actually down to do plankton modeling um, because I was basically last in so I got last dibs I think I was just given a given a topic and that's definitely not what I wanted to do at all and I remember Rich Unsworth gave a lecture uh, and at this is the time he wasn't he wasn't taking students. He gave a lecture on seagrass ecosystems, and I remember making a beeline for him at the end of the lecture and being like, "I will do anything on seagrass ecosystems. Any research you want me to do, if uh, if I can swap to seagrass, you know, I, I wanted to do mangroves, coral, or seagrass, some sort of coastal ecosystem, uh, and not plankton." And at the time, he didn't take students. But he went away and came back and said, "You know, you could do this this uh, this metronas for for me, this desk, desk based work." So um, bit his hand off, said, yeah, absolutely, I'll do that. And it was through that, it was through reading all the papers, you know, doing a big literature review on, on CRS science, that it, it just dawned on me how important this habitat was, but that no one had heard of it. 
And as a as a biology a biology teacher, a secondary school science teacher, and as a diving instructor, I thought if if anyone was going to have heard of it, surely I'd have heard of this habitat. And yet I hadn't, and that kind of concerned me. And I was like, is that unique? Is that just me? You know, growing up in Birmingham, it could be just the fact that I grew up in the city, but no, no one, no one really knew about seagrasses. They weren't being taught really in, in universities. They were kind of this forgotten habitat. And myself and Ben, you know, we'd speak about this in, in the pub or you know, at the, at the, when we were teaching diving. And, and it was just always that point of conversation. And so we, when we went to speak to Rich and said, you know, this is an issue. Is there something we could do about it? And he, he knew it was an issue as well because he was producing fantastic research in this space. And a lot of his colleagues were globally and still are. It's a relatively small global community, but growing. But it just wasn't reaching the public. It wasn't reaching policy. It wasn't reaching out. And so we initially set up Project Seagrass almost as that uh, mouthpiece or a voice for Seagrass where we could communicate some of the science that was being done but in a way that was just accessible uh, and, you know, fun and interesting, leaning on some of my skills, um, maybe as a teacher and outreach and engagement. And Ben's very, very creative. And so, we, we you know, we put together a framework for an embryonic NGO. We, we actually founded it out of my student house in Swansea. Uh, initially, that was the registered address for Project Seagrass. And it's just, it's been one, it's, it's filled a gap, you know, it's been one of those, we've just grown rapidly, I guess. And it's been, it's been an amazing journey. It's been tiring and it's been hard and it's not always been easy, but yeah, it's, it's, um, it's been worth it. The best things never are, are they? <laughs> They're always a bit of a challenge. <laughs> so I'm wondering, because um, obviously you mentioned coral reefs before, and I would imagine pretty much everybody's heard of a coral reef and, and can visualise it. And as you as you rightly say, seagrass probably isn't on no one's radar except your now global space that you've you've heralded. Why is that? Is it not as important? Is it not as pretty? How has it not got on the people's radar? Yeah. So I think. It'd be interesting. We, we we often discuss this in terms of where is seagrass recognised, and you know somewhere like Australia. So to cast cast back to 2011, 2010, when Rich and Leanne used to work out on the Great Barrier Reef um, as seagrass scientists over there, and when they returned to Wales, they were kind of shocked that within the UK conscious uh, consciousness or the UK regulatory framework or whatever, seagrass wasn't a thing. So why? Why were seagrass meadows being protected and heralded for all these benefits they were bringing elsewhere in the world, but they weren't having been afforded that same, you know, not respect, but level of protection and governance and management that were, were, were over here. And, you know, part of that I can understand because we've actually lost a lot of our seagrass meadows around the UK. And, you know, if you've, if you've never seen one, then why would you know that it used to exist? So there's that sort of loss element. But there's also just been this lack of lack of science and lack of um, evidence, I guess, to, to show how important they are. So what you do see across the world is there is an uneven recognition, I guess, of, of seagrass meadows. But as more and more science is being done and it's being communicated to, to people why seagrass meadows are important, that they're just they're, they're, they're rapidly climbing up the, the agenda in terms of these priority habitats we need to look after. In terms of charisma, seagrass meadows perhaps don't hold on, on face value, at least that that same charisma that coral reefs do. Coral reefs are very pretty. You know, the dive industry is, is often built around um, coral reefs, or at least the you know the way that it's marketed. Although you know, there's fantastic diving in the Mediterranean in certain locations where that's you know based around seagrass habitat. But seagrass is exactly what it says on the tin. It, visually, it's it's grass under the water. 
And so, and actually some of the features that make seagrass so productive, uh, you know, nursery habitat for baby fish isn't conducive to them being a nice dive site because seagrass, all the baby fish hide in the seagrass. And if you want to go on a dive, you want to go and see things. You don't want to go and look at grass and be like, there's lots of animals in there, but I can't see them. So it's, I guess it's that sort of, the fact that they form these, these stands or these prairies or these meadows, which are full of life, but often um, that life is, is tiny and protected within that. that. And also that they're, they're just not as colorful. You're not the you know, reds and purples and yellows. They're just, they are green, they are plants. So, yeah. But you know what, I think, I think that the perception is changing. And I think a lot of that is testament to, to some, there's, there's some fantastic videographers and photographers out there now who are documenting these ecosystems, sharing fantastic imagery, and really helping to communicate on a level which isn't to do with like the science and the numbers, it's to do with the emotion, you know, the, 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 the charisma of these, mm -hmm. these ecosystems. And that's making, made a huge difference in, this, a bit, a, a, in the ability of people to connect on a, using some spiritual level, but like a reason for just enjoying the habitat for what it is, just enjoying nature for what it is, rather than being like, it stores carbon, it stores fisheries, it's worth this amount of money per year. Yeah, and you raise a good point there. Why are we ascribing value to it? Is it because it's part of our natural world or is it because of the things you just mentioned now about it absorbing carbon and being um, a place where other creatures can live? I'm guessing it's doing all of those things. Where, where do people connect with that? Totally. So I often find my language that I'm using, I have, I have to change depending on who I'm speaking to. So, and this can, so, you know, if you're speaking to industry or if you're speaking to government, you might use the term ecosystem services or different, different governments actually using different terms around natural capital and nature-based solutions. And there's lots of buzzwords out there that tend to be used in different industries. As scientists, we tend to use frame it under this ecosystem service element. So what, what, are the services, what are the benefits that nature provides just for being there. And for seagrass meadows, one of the, the services which is really high on the agenda or the benefits from nature is they store, and this isn't true this isn't true across all seagrass species, but they store a lot of carbon. You know, they're phenomenal carbon sequestering species. And in the in the context of a global climatic emergency, that's that's really shot them up the, the, the league table in terms of interest. And also, like I referred to around fisheries and biodiversity, we're also facing a biodiversity crisis uh, and, and food security is, a, is it going to be a big issue over the next 30 years. And seagrass meadows are, are fisheries powerhouses. And it's quite simple, really. Um, they're nursery grounds for, for fish. And so if you lose nursery grounds, you're losing baby fish. And no baby fish means no adult fish. And so, you know, if we protect these nursery grounds as critical um, habitat, which is super productive, um, then you're going to have more baby fish who will, and they'll go on to become adult fish, and then you've got that food security. So, I guess it's that dual, those dual benefits of seagrass ecosystems that, from a, a policy perspective, you know, at the governmental level, um, are are um, are really attractive. And then, I guess in terms of the the, the more human connection, one of the things I like about seagrass. I really shouldn't say this as a as the CEO of Project Seagrass, but for me, it's it's more than just seagrass. You know, we need to be thinking about the sustainable management of the oceans and the coastal zone more generally, and connecting people with the ocean and connecting people with just nature again. And so, seagrass is a fantastic vehicle to do that, and, and particularly for me as a gateway into the marine space. For for 
terrestrial restoration projects or terrestrial uh, conservation projects, they're accessible because they're on the land. The sea can seem a little bit distant or a bit hard to engage with. And, you know, when we talk about native oyster restoration or uh, horse mussel, mussel beds or anything which isn't a plant, you know, the life cycle oyster spat and it can be a little bit more complicated and removed for people who aren't familiar. But I think everyone gets plants and, and seagrasses are a plant. So they've got seeds, the seed, and then they grow from the seed. They flower, produce more seeds. You collect those seeds, you plant those seeds. And, you know, people understand we're underwater gardening is what we're doing, you know. So people have got that instant connection where they understand the process. And seagrasses, by their very nature, are found in this coastal zone. So it's it's very accessible. Um, you can get mass participation involved. We've had young people from seven years old out snorkeling, picking seeds, all the way up to, well, I won't mention their ages, but elderly people who wanted to get involved in the space. And, and, and it's, so it's accessible for everybody. So, you know, that, that there's that way where you can use seagrass to say, look, we can restore our marine environment as well. And actually the marine environment isn't just a box with water and sand. You know, there's a rich mosaic of habitats there, mussel beds, oyster reefs, kelp forests, seagrass meadows. Um, and really, you know, especially with modern technology and these you know, small cameras and everything else that we can get, we can really bring the ocean into people's lives in a way that we haven't been able to do previously. I think that's a really good point because people might imagine the only way they're going to see seagrass is by putting on dive gear, but you've quite, it sounds like they, because they're in shallower waters, you can literally uh, put a, just a mask on and away you go. Absolutely. And, 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 you know, so seagrasses are found in the UK, we've got two species. We've got um, dwarf eelgrass and, and eelgrass. And um, so that's Zostrinolti, or uh, I think it's recently been classified as Nanozostrinolti um, and Zostrin mariner. Um, but we've only got these two species and they're found in that intertidal space. So the dwarf eelgrass is found up higher on the intertidal uh, and it's, you know, it's, I guess, more linked with uh, widgeon, uh, brent geese, you know, uh, migratory bird, bird life and, and waterfowl uh, and has a, a really important ecosystem role there. Um, and then as you head down the intertidal zone into the subtitle, that's where you'll, you'll, you'll come across Zoster mariner uh, and Zoster mariner will be probably in the really cool, clear waters of the Outer Hebrides, maybe seven, eight, nine metres deep, max probably, I'd have thought. Um, maybe in Cornwall and the Cities, you might find it around that depth as well. But, you know, it's shallow. It's really, really shallow. And, it's, and it's, they tend to be found in those shallow, sheltered coastal environments where they're able to survive. They're not found in the surf zone because there's too much energy there. And so, you know, if you were going to go wild swimming, which of which there's been a, a huge growth during the lockdown or stand up paddle boarding, or there's more and more people getting out into this space. And so there's more and more people coming across these, these seagrass habitats. I think the value of getting people out there and seeing it and connecting with it has a huge potential because I, I do believe that when people are connected with something, they want to then protect it. And in terms of protection, you, you obviously mentioned earlier that there's been huge losses. Why has that been the case? And I know that the, your projects are involved in trying to reverse that. So tell me a bit about why and what you're doing to mitigate that. Yeah, okay, so globally, I'll go global and then, and then local. So gl globally, we're involved in, in, in um, a few projects. And, and one, for example, is in the Indo-Pacific, where we've, we've historically done a lot of work. And, and that's about building scientific capacity. You know, there, there's community groups and there's organisations on the ground in, we're working in five countries, Malaysia, Thailand, East Timor, Philippines and Indonesia. 
uh, and there are organizations there wanting to, to conduct robust scientific surveys um, to evidence how important their seagrass meadows are for, to let to leave, leave a policy change. And so, you know, that sort of collaborative community work working um, with colleagues globally is a big part of what we do. And where seagrass meadows have been lost in those countries is, is all slightly different. Some of it's um, where seagrass meadows might be found slightly deeper, could be through um, active bottom touching gear, which might just drag through a seagrass meadow and damage it. It could be through water quality. Uh, so if there's if there's pollution or runoff uh, into the marine space uh, and it's uh, having enough density, that can have a big impact on seagrass meadows. And actually it's that story, which is the biggest one for the UK. You know, if we, if we look at seagrass loss around the UK, it's not through, through fishing gear, it's through poor water quality and it's historical. You know, if you, if you look back at the UK during the industrial revolution, uh, or you look back at the UK and all the big cities before we had, and we still don't have the best. We, we have still have Victorian level infrastructure when it comes to you know effluent and sewage, uh, and there's a big campaign around that at the moment. But the Thames 200 years ago, the amount of sewage and effluent and, and just rubbish that was being thrown into the Thames has led to habitat loss, not just of seagrass, but lots of benthic habitats within these, these key estuaries. And the same story will be true in the Humber or the Clyde or the Firth of Forth. But what we have seen is a, an improvement of water qualities in these, in, in these estuaries. Um, you know, sitting here in Edinburgh, looking at the Firth of Forth, there's documented improvements to the water quality. Less raw sewage is going into the, into the, into the Firth of Forth. We still have that problem with, as the rest of the UK does with storm overflow, but you know the, the organisations up here are working to make Edinburgh more spongy. So there's less runoff of water. There's better management practices for farmland and, and you know the, the surrounding area. You know the paper mills have shut down, the coal-fired power stations have shut down, and so the water quality year on year is improving. Now, in some locations, the removal of the pressure will be enough for habitats to bounce back if there's a strong enough or resilient enough fragment left. And as that water quality improves, there will be a natural rebound. But in some locations, the, the habitats actually become locally extinct um, because the water quality would have been so poor that every last plant died. And then there's not a seed bank to get the seeds back into that space. And so what we're doing through some of the restoration work is identifying where seagrass might have been previously, could be returned. If the water quality is good enough, then you can return uh, a basic population there. And then hopefully nature... If the, if the water quality remains good enough, can take its course. And I guess to, to build on that, one of the, the flagship projects that I look at globally, uh, you know, a role model product for us is a project that was being run out of Chesapeake Bay in the States. Um, in, it's Bob Orth's lab. For 20 years now, they've been restoring seagrass, much like, like we do over here, uh, into the Chesapeake Bay. And it's been a combination of, um, over that period, reducing the poor water quality entering the estuary, uh, returning oysters as well, which helped to enhance the quality of the water. And I think they've only restored maybe 70 million seeds. I'd have to check my, 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 my most recent figures from this project, but I think it's in, in the order of 70 million seeds. But what they've seen is they've the, the system's essentially flipped. It's gone from an unproductive system to a system which is actually beneficial for seagrass because the more seagrass there is, the better the light coming through to the sea floor, they've better the water quality and it becomes a positive feedback loop. And so they flipped a system from a very negative state into a very positive state and they've gone from 
no seagrass, essentially to 3,612 hectares, so 36 kilometers squared of seagrass in 20 years. And, you know, it's that level of ambition for recovery that I'd love to see over here. Now, we're, we're, we're excited because we started the journey. We've done two hectares. But when you compare the scale, it's, you know, there's no contest there, is there? But we are at the start of our journey. And it's about normalizing that ambition, I think. Well, absolutely. And those numbers are incredible. <laughs> they are very impressive just by the sheer number that you're talking about there. And what a great inspiration for, for you to be able to do that uh, here in the UK. I mean, two points there. One is it's it's always astounded me that our water quality, you, you think because we have we can drink water out of our tap and we have flushing toilets that we've got that's sorted, but we so have not. And the other the other point that you make about it then restoring water quality by being there by you know the fact that you're restoring the the seagrass is 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 such a great win, and I guess that's where they, the term sort of nature based solution would be drawn into that sort of as a selling point. In terms of those numbers, how easy is it to get to those vast numbers? Are we talking about a huge time frame or a manpower? Is it what's the ambition oh there's there's so many there's so many elements to that you know we, we'd love to see that level of ambition over here and, and certainly we there are a number of organizations who've got that level of ambition there's lots of legacy issues in the uk and it's not it's not anyone's fault it's just the way that we've evolved as a as a you know as a as a, a nation or a cluster of nations and, and that's you know with the industrial revolution coming early and infrastructure around you know um, sewage and etc going in early relatively speaking the capacity wasn't built for the cities of our size and it's very expensive to retrofit you know there was lots of benefits in the early 1990s some pretty stringent eu laws came in uh, and water industry had to respond to those um, but that was really to address that sort of first wave of sewage pollution but now the second sort of wave that we're experiencing now and surfers against sewage are doing a lot of work in this space i'm not too sure if you follow hugo tagholm and the team down there where they're really shining a light on this issue. And it's kind of this, this issue that we've got this infrastructural issue. You know, we need to, we need to improve wastewater um, management, but it isn't, it's, it's going to be a relatively expensive thing to do, but way cheaper than the issues that it's actually causing, you know, in terms of restoration. So the, the thing that always strikes me with, with these kind of restoration or conservation projects is it's much easier some, for some reason to be able to get funding to do restoration rather than just prevent the loss in the first place. And prevention is always better than cure, always. You know, so if we can reduce the, the pressures and the burden on the marine environment, we'll see nature recover. And so that's the, the first port of call there is um, some pretty tough decisions. Well, not, they're not tough, just make them. Some, but let's start that journey of, of addressing the, the, the infrastructure. And then there's elements around just the way that our economy's grown up and 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 developed. And if you, I was actually on a call the other day with um, some of the the regulators in the marine space and like around marine licensing, and you know marine licenses historically have developed around the need to sort of regulate and manage extractive extraction from the marine space, whether that's oil rigs or whether that's fisheries or whatever it may be. Never before has there been projects which go back and go, oh, we're going to put something back but it's for like the public good so so the, the the law isn't geared up for for restoration projects if i think about and this might sound crazy but if i think about like putting a, a bag a biodegradable bag with sand in it and seeds on the sea floor 
if that sand is new to the marine environment, it's, it's new sediment, then I'm, by the letter of the law, I'm creating a, it's a construction project. So I need a marine construction license. And that, you know, that's not the, 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 the regulator's fault because they just need to apply the letter of the law. And I completely understand that. But it does seem a little bit, it makes the whole process of trying to restore the marine environment a little bit more complicated because there's almost all these, all these legal hurdles which just aren't fit for purpose. And so there needs to be that wider conversation around if we are going to fully engage with the UN Decade on Ecosystem Restoration and if we are going to adopt nature-based solutions to address the climate crisis and the biodiversity crisis more broadly, we need to tinker with our tools and our, our legislation to make that possible. And of course, it needs to be regulated, but we need to think, it can't, basically, we need to, we need to actively progress legisl legislation in this space. And there's a whole bunch of other things I could probably talk about, but I won't, I won't go into it now. That sounds like a frustrating challenge, primarily because when, you, when you're up against policy like that, it's, it's just so long to get through and get those things changed, isn't it? It is, but, but and, and, you know, we, we talk about an enabling environment, and, and that's where, you know, from a governmental perspective, you can make a much more enabling environment by policy change, but policy change, take, policy change takes time. But within regulators and within, within the bodies that um, have to deploy the law, you know, there are ways that we can think about how we can work together to actually make it possible to do some of this work, even within the current confines. Because, you know, the people who, who are having to say, this, this is the legal system, this is what you need to do. I think they will also recognise, um, I might be speaking on behalf of them here, but I think they also recognise that it's a little bit silly to think of a seagrass restoration project as a construction project. But that is what it, it is if I move new sand into the area. If I use sand which is already existing in the marine environment, so just take that sand out and put the, that sand into the Hessian bag, then it's not new sand. So it's sand that already existed. So there are, there are ways that you can sort of work around the project. It may not be ideal, and certainly for long-term restoration, it's, it's not a, a good approach. But for the time being, whilst we're having this com conversation and whilst we're developing collaboratively together a route forward, and that's key, I think we all need to work together in this space, um, then you know, we, can, we can start making, we can, we, can begin, we can start at least start to make progress. That's the key thing here is collaboration. You know, there's, there's no point, I find it very difficult to engage in conversations in this space where you're at loggerheads you know like blame this person you know the, you're blaming the regulator or you're or blaming this individual you're blaming that group or that industry that doesn't help because within an industry there's a huge variety of different you know organizations and people's people at play within government within you know so let's just let's find the common grounds and try and find a solution i imagine that perspective that attitude you take to obstacles and dealing with people that you know you've got to collaborate with if you're going to make progress is is, is pretty essential to, to 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 go forward with and i'm guessing that kind of comes from your teaching communication type skills background maybe i, I you know i think there i think with 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 the big global challenges it's not going to be any one individual there's not going to be any silver bullet here we're all in this together we've got one planet and you know when it's not in great shape and we need to do something about it urgently and when i think about conflict in that in that in that and the conflict resolution in that in that way 
I never see any progress with those conflicts. It's just, you know, you can see this on Twitter, uh, just one group bashing another group and bashing another group. And it, there's so much more that unites us than, than divides us. And so what is it that, where, where is the common ground? And, and let's, have a, let's have a conversation around actually the understanding of what, what you think I'm after and what I think you're after. And is actually that what we're both, you know, is it what you're after? Because sometimes I, th- I feel with those conflicts, you can get two groups who are arguing over whatever it may be, but they're, they're both, they're both adopting their positions and almost like entrenched positions based upon an idea of what the other person thinks rather than what they actually think. And there's no way you're going to actually know what they think unless you have that conversation. So it's like de-escalating the tension and being like, oh, we can work together on this. You know, there's, there's, we both want more fish or we both want, I don't know, a healthier seabed, better water quality. And yeah, and, and in terms of, you know, there's been a lot of interest in Project Seagrass and, and what we do as an organisation over the past, particularly over the past 24 months. And there's organisations out there who know, like they, they know they, there's, they need to up their game. They know that they need to be on a journey uh, to become more sustainable, to reduce their carbon footprint, to, to reduce the impact they have on the environment. But they also, they also want help. You know, within a lot of these organisations, there's legislation coming in saying they need to reach net zero and they need to do X, Y, and Z. And if you if you manufacture uh, cans or if you make clothes or if you whatever it is that your organisation does, you probably don't come from an ecological sustainability background, and therefore you're operating. Suddenly, you're being asked to address things that you don't have any knowledge about, and it's like help. And so. If if you if we took the position of like we're not going to work with you because we don't you know your environmental track record is terrible, and they're going please work with us because we want to improve, you know if I just shut them off there then we're not going to see any change in because they can't they don't know how to and so it's about that accepting that we're all in this together and we can transition you know but it's going to take us working together. Yeah, and I think you you touch on a big picture, standing back and seeing the big picture rather than, or as well as looking at what you want to accomplish within your realm, but you're also standing back and going, well, we all need to be part of this. Uh, I think that's such a healthy, healthy way to look at it. Well, I think fundamentally, and I think this is the global picture, I always find the, when you think about the space of the planet and you look at it and you zoom out and you give it the real global perspective, the, the small day-to-day, oh, I managed to do this, or I managed to, it doesn't matter. It's, it's what we achieve collectively as a society. And I, we work um, with, with the UN. So we're supporting partners of the UN decade on ecosystem restoration. And the UN, by definition, is global. And so it really helps to be in that room and have those conversations where, you know, I might be worrying about point source pollution in the further fourth, but they're thinking about the Great Green War across North Africa and desertification and, it just the scale, the scale of some of the challenges is so enormous that your your individual worries about individual projects might be might be um, are just kind of a little bit lost. Like they are, of course, important, but they in the big scheme of things, you need to understand that you need to feel the whole the whole the whole challenge. And also, I love the philosophy because it's the first time for me, anyway, that I can think of a, a UN decade which is about grassroots empowerment. And like keep bringing communities on board, it's uh, 
the whole model of it is not top down, it's bottom up. It's you know, generation restoration, decade with a hashtag. It's, it's about mobilizing people and giving people agency and giving people permission to, you know, empower, to empower them to get out and, and be involved in nature restoration. And whether that's in the sea or land or whatever, and to, and to connect people and to share and to, and to democratize that space. Um, and I love that because, you know, we, we've been on that journey as a microcosm, as an organization, where in, in 2019, we, we did that first UK pilot for a, a full scale, like a two hectare seagrass restoration project. And we've seen a proliferation of projects at the back of that. But also over those years, we've, We've written, like, helped to, or helped to write a seagrass restoration handbook, and uh, one for Nature Scott and one for the Environment Agency. And, and that's about saying, you know, this is what we know so far. They're very much live documents. There's still a lot to learn. But, you know, if you wanted to do this, if you wanted to do this in your backyard, this is how you'd go about it. And, it, and it's about sharing that knowledge. Because if you keep all that knowledge to yourself, that, that doesn't progress anything, and you're limited to the scale you can have. Whereas if you can share... You know, I'm a massive believer in sharing knowledge. Just if you can tell people about what you've learned and if we can share that information and everyone's got access to that information, then we can we can move forward. And there's you know it's inspiring to see so many groups operating in this space now and more coming forward as well. Yeah, it absolutely is. I wonder then, because you are very positive uh, in your outlook, where what do you think seagrass ecosystems will look like in 2050? If if you'd hazard a guess. So globally, globally, we want to see a net positive return. So at the moment, we're in a situation that net, we're losing seagrass year on year globally at the moment. And that's a concern because, well, for everything we spoke about, carbon sequestration, nutrient cycling, fisheries, everything. I would love, in terms of staging points, I think 2030, I'd love to see a position where because of the combination of improved water quality and active restoration and everything else that we're in a position where we get actually no net loss that, you know, there might be loss in some places, but it's offset by, by gains elsewhere. And I think the trajectory for 2050 is we want to, we want to see net gain. Um, and we want to, and towards net 50, we want to be back in a place where seagrasses are existing everywhere. Pretty much they can exist across the planet. And so, you know, we've probably lost a third of our seagrass meadows globally since well, maybe over the last 40 or 50 years. Um, loads of coastal development, loads of poor water quality issues. And it depends, you know, where there's different challenges in different regions. And in some of those regions, it'll be easier to recover those ecosystems. And in others, it'll be very, very difficult. So there's a species of seagrass in the Mediterranean, which is like the queen of seagrasses, uh, Posidonia oceanica, Neptune grass. It's, um, it's, the, it's the flagship species. It's the headline act for... All, all the um, ecosystem services that you know that society and policy talks around fisheries productivity carbon storage you know it does everything but it's like the oak tree of the seagrass world it's very very hard to restore and it, it, it won't recover quickly uh, and so even 2050 feels like a bit of an optimistic time frame to to get Posidonia back to where it was but I'd love to be on that trajectory whereas in other parts of the world where you've got seagrasses with a a quicker turnaround and they're more fecund and, and then that makes them more resilient. We might be able to see um, seagrasses bounce back. I guess it depends it depends where, but certainly 2030, no net loss, 2050, um, net gain uh, to a point where seagrasses are everywhere they should be. That will be an excellent uh, visual for sure. 
Uh, as I bring this conversation to a close, I wonder because of the of you working in this space and uh, being a diver and having all that previous experience of of actually being in the water and getting very close to the importance of why why nature is so valuable in of itself, but also for all those reasons you've talked about, has it uh, impacted the way you just live every day? Have you become more sustainable from those experiences? I think, do you know what? I guess yes and no. I think as, as individuals, we are looking to make change. But this is a very academic way of phrasing this, but there's the choice architecture, the choices that we're presented with. Well, we might get, we might go into a shop. We might, we might live in a location. I live, I live in this, in this, this flat in Edinburgh and, and on my high street, if I was going to go and get some food, I get presented with a choice of, let's say 10 shops where I could go. And I can go to the most sustainable shop. But then there's trade-offs there because, you know, I might not be able to afford to go to that shop every day as much as I'd like to. If I go within into any shop, I get presented with a, a, a choice of what I can buy within that shop. And none of them are necessarily sustainable, but there's probably one which is less unsustainable. And you can maybe go for that choice. And our decision-making on a day-to-day -day basis is framed by that choice of architecture. We walk in and we have to make a million decisions every day, uh, and that will lead to a certain carbon output or biodiversity loss or biodiversity gain or whatever it may be and so i think sometimes when you when you break that down it can be overwhelming to try and think about how as an individual you can make those differences and that's where there's this this, this whole discussion around system change you know we can't blame people and you can't put the onus on, on individuals to make all these changes when the system isn't allowing us to to make the changes we're, we're unless we starve we we can't choose the right food source or you know and then there's the, the, the complication around it you know is it better to eat meat from a farm 200 meters away from my flat or is it better to eat an avocado flowing from the other side of the world and the conflict information oh wow so it is a it's a minefield but i think again what it comes down to is, is being at peace with the fact that it's a minefield and just trying to make the best decisions you can and and own that and be like right well what can i do and all I can do in my space is just keep pushing Project Seagrass, keep trying to engage people in this conversation, keep keep trying to think about the big picture and, and articulate the big picture. Because like I said, it's not about seagrass. Seagrass is one habitat in a mosaic of habitats that we need to think about. And, you know, it's also that vehicle to connect with the sea when the marine space more broadly in whether it's as narrow as the sea, the ocean, which I think there is that lack of ocean, what scientists might also call ocean literacy, but there's, I guess, a lack of understanding of, the, as, of how important the sea is, because if we had that understanding, we wouldn't be treating it like a sewer. But also nature, you know, I think everyone slowing down during the pandemic and connect probably made people think a little bit more, appreciate the nature was on their doorstep. Uh, and I hope we don't lose that. I don't think we we will actually. I'm I'm maybe this is just me being deep optimistic, but I think the I think there's a there's a recognition that we are part of nature, and anything one like something that happens in nature can can flip the switch overnight, and that we need to be changing our 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 lifestyles and the way that we approach living on this planet because otherwise those things will happen again and again and again and you know we need to minimize that 
Absolutely. I really appreciate the, the kind of depth of that, that um, answer to that question, because it's not a simple, it's not a simple question. And the fact that you brought in all those points about the being systemic and we can't affect those systemic, you know, we can only do what we can do within the realms of the choices that were available to us. So I think it's a really good place to end on in that it, we can all do what we can do, but we don't have to feel guilty about the stuff that we've got no control over. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that's, that's hits on the head totally. So thanks, Richard. It's been super illuminating talking to you about seagrass and I, for one, have, are going to look into the sea and see something new and I hope others will too. So thanks very much for your time. No, absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. What an illuminating conversation. Seagrass seems to be an unsung hero of the seas, providing habitat for much marine life, sequestering carbon, cleaning up water and enabling fish populations to prosper. Richard's project is raising the profile of seagrass, despite hurdles such as regulations. I very much admired Richard's big picture attitude and his ability to navigate tricky relationships with perhaps seemingly opposing organisations. He's able to find common ground for collaborations in the quest to restore biodiversity, mitigate climate change and reduce pollution. Like any environmental endeavour, there are numerous complex issues intricately entwined. To find out more about the project, check out the link in the show notes. I'd like to thank Andy Shaw for audio editing, Jeremy Jones for providing the music, and to you, of course, for listening. Don't forget you can subscribe to get automatic access to each new episode, and it would be lovely if you could rate, review and share the podcast. It really helps. Until next time, bye for now.